1: Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Boat Trader is America's largest boating marketplace with over 100,000 boats to choose from. We offer simple, comprehensive solutions for those looking to sell, find, and finance new or used boats. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. Brought to you by CD Fishing USA, the North American distributor for composite development fly rods and accessories. Forty years of Kiwi ingenuity and in graphite technology now available at cd fishing.us or your local CD USA dealer. Follow us on Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. And remember to go fishing. Here's your host, The Carnops, and this is the February Room
2: welcome to the february room today my guest michael reed has a whale of a tail for us or should i say a record tuna of a tail and thank you so much for joining me today michael
3: oh you're welcome pleasure to be here
2: we're going to get into the big story but give a little bit of a background of your fly fishing
3: sure so um when i was a kid my father worked for um a newspaper in Baltimore, Maryland, the Baltimore Sun. And on the newspaper staff, well actually the head of the outdoor part of the paper was Lefty Cray. And there some other pretty well-known writers at the time, Bill Burton. So when I was maybe 10 or 11, um, I got into fly fishing. I got my first rod, which was a Garcia Mitchell, very heavy fiberglass rod, and uh, uh, the fluger Medalist, which everybody got when they were a kid. and. Um, fished mainly warm water for warm water fish like bass and bluegill but eventually uh, went on a family trip to the Smokies and um, had a chance to do some trout fishing and and was just really hooked and uh, years later my sister had moved to Cape Cod and visiting her at some point her husband um, had mentioned a guy that was a fly fishing guy there he fished for stripers and blues and and uh, false albacore, and um, thought I might be interested to try saltwater fly fishing, which I did, and uh, mostly striped bass, and just really fell in love with it. Um, and after several years of doing that, my interest was kind of peaked, and thought I, you know, would be interested to try some pelagics. As a little side note, my casting wasn't all that great, and uh, so I thought, you know what, Lef- lefty lived like. 20 minutes from where I live. So I called him up one day. I said, can you help me with my casting? And he said, sure. So I went over to his house, uh, which was really impressive. He's like one of the most organized guys I've ever met in my life. (laughs) His fishing rooms were incredible. We went out to a local golf course where there were some ponds with a lot of grass around them. And um, he, uh, I think I had an eight weight RPLX and, uh, you know, like a bonefish size rod that I use for stripers. And uh, he, you know, handed me the rod and stepped back and he said, all right, well, let me see you, you know, cast a little bit. So I took three or four false casts and he kind of raised both arms and said, oh, hang on, hang on. I said, what's the problem? He said, if you could keep that up, you're gonna tear your underwear. I said, okay. (laughs) So I handed him the rod. He stripped all the line off the reel. It was a two-piece rod. He took it apart, put the butt section on the ground and proceeded to take like three false casts, cast the entire line across the pond. It was just, you know, he's like 75 years old. (laughs) And uh, it was, the point was, it wasn't about power, you know, it was about uh, timing and technique. So um, anyway, he was a great help to me. And we had a local river that I fished a lot in Maryland called the Gunpowder River. And uh, I was at the fly shop one day and talking to a guy, I think it was about work, and we were exchanging business cards and he happened to drop his wallet. Bunch of cards slid out of the wallet and I was helping him pick them up and I noticed this one card, it said, Sea Creature Sport Fishing. And I thought, huh, that's pretty interesting. And so I said, what's the deal with this guy? And He said, well, it's a, a guy, he's a, he has a charter business, but he really likes to cater to fly fishermen out in the ocean. And I said, well, I've been looking to do some of that. Can I, you mind if I take his card? He said, no, not at all. So um, I called him up. I think it was in the fall of 95 and uh, uh, had a really nice chat, told him I was interested in, in uh, you know, going out in the ocean, trying to catch some dolphin or, you know, maybe even a billfish. He said, well, the the time of year, it's not right you know it's not the it's not the right time of year we need to go out probably in like may or june i said well that's fine i can wait i said i have a couple trips planned this winter i'm going to mexico uh you know trying to learn a little bit about uh you know pelagic uh fly fishing and um so later that winter i was I was about to head out on that trip and uh we had a huge snowstorm and um, shut the airport down, it was really disappointing, and I, I had a, not a business, but I plowed a lot of snow for friends and neighbors and the farms around where I lived, and um, after, I think it was nine or ten days of plowing, I was just so fed up with winter, and I'm like, I drove home late one night, and put the truck away, went inside, told my wife, I said, I'm going to Cabo tomorrow morning, I said, I can't take it anymore, <laughs> and um, she said, okay, whatever. And uh, she's a very agreeable person. <laughs> a good sport. Oh yeah. So I went. I went to Cabo. Had a great time. Caught some really nice mahi up to like forty pounds. Um, I remember catching some uh, skipjack tuna. That I remember the first one I caught. I was. I was. Uh, there was no fly. There were no fly fishing guides. Nobody really knew much about fly fishing in Cabo back then. It was just all you know conventional tackle. And I, I remember when I hooked this first first uh, skipjack tuna, I was like, oh, this fish is huge. It's got to be like 40 pounds. And he said, no, it's probably about six pounds. And I'm like, what? And and, uh, I finally got the fish up after probably 10 minutes. And he was right. It was just this tiny little tuna. I just couldn't believe the power in this animal. And um, we released all this fish. And I might have kept a couple mahi for for, uh, sushi that night. But um, anyway, I came home. It was toward the end of January in 1996 and um when I got home that night the phone rang and it was this guy who had this charter business Sea Creature Sport Fishing his name is Steve Coulter he said you remember me i said sure yeah we got we have a trip booked and uh he said well you need to get down here like tomorrow and i'm like what do you mean he said he said the bluefin are everywhere And they're the right size to catch on a fly rod. He said, there's all kinds of people here trying to catch them. Billy Pate um, with his wife and a a bunch of other pretty well-known sort of early saltwater fly fishing guys. And um, I said, man, I just got home today from Mexico. I said, "Uh, you know, he said, you got to get down here. I said, he said, these opportunities, they don't last. The weather gets funky. It's going to be perfect in two days. So I said, okay. And I uh, hung up the phone and I went downstairs and I, and I said, to my, her name's Debbie. I said, Debbie, I, uh, I'm gonna have to go to Hatteras tomorrow. <laughs> and she, she, she didn't say much. She just said, you're sick. <laughs> and I said, okay, um, well, thanks. And uh, I said, I'm only going for a couple days. So I left the next morning I think I might have called Creature back. Told him his, his nickname is Creature, by the way.
2: And why Creature?
3: So uh, I'm pretty sure it's a it's an old high school football uh, n- well earned nickname. Um, he was a defensive lineman. He's a pretty big guy, kind of intimidating looking, a little bit scary. I would describe him as um, if if um, Charlie Daniels' sister and Stu Apt. Which a lot of your listeners will know who that is. Well, they'll know who both of them are. Had a had a love child, and they celebrated with a lot of really high class bourbon throughout the pregnancy. <laughs> they their their love child would have been creature. <laughs> anyway, um, he said, "Go to Sonny's restaurant, and uh, and and they'll know where to find me." So I drove down. I got there late. It's a long ride, and if if. if for any of your listeners who have never been to the Outer Banks, it's definitely a place to, to go at least once and fish because it's it's an incredible place. Um, the uh, What makes it so great for fishing um, is you have the Gulf Stream heading sort of north-northeast and the Labrador Current heading south along the coast and they converge right off of Hatteras. So there's just so much sea life there and just uh, unlimited fishing opportunities. So I uh, went to the restaurant and um, uh, waited for him there, and this guy came in. He was, like I said, kind of a big guy, tall, had, had a big beard, and he was rubbing his beard, looking around, and there weren't many people in there, and he, and he saw me, and he immediately sort of you know, strode over, and he said, he said, you Michael? And I said, I said, yeah. He said, Creature. And I said, oh, Steve, how you doing? He said, call me Creature. <laughs> so I think, was, I think that was the last time I ever called him Steve. And uh, he sat down and mm-hmm. uh, we kind of, you know, I wanted to know what, you know, what the deal was tomorrow, what the procedure was. And he said, well, it's going to be pretty foggy, so we'll head out slow. We have to run like 25 miles offshore to a spot called the Rock Pile. And he said, I have radar and, you know, we're safe and all that. And I said, that's fine. I said, what's the weather like? He said, just a little foggy and a real light wind and it's supposed to clear later in the day. He said, it's perfect. So, um, I said, well, I, I have a couple questions, um, you know, about, like, the rules and fly fishing, you know, regulations for, for fly fishing from a boat um, if you're, you know, going for some sort of record consideration. He said, well, um, there's not a whole lot. You, you obviously you have to have the right leader, which uh, for, for those saltwater leaders, your line class, which if I was using 10 kilo can't be more I think it was it couldn't be less than 15 inches long that portion of the leader and your shock tippet which couldn't be more than 100 pounds couldn't be more than 12 inches long in total including the knots so he said if your leaders are I said my leaders are perfect I was like meticulous about them he said um the boat has to be out of gear when you hook the fish um he said as soon as you hook the fish you can put it in gear to obviously to fight it and then uh you can't, um, you can't rest your rod on, on the washboard or, or the gunwale of the boat. I mean, you have to hold your rod the whole time. You can't use a harness or anything like that. You can use a a gimbal butt, which is, um, well, it ha- I mean, the rod has a gimbal butt, and then you use a belt that has a gimbal in it or, or a, a place where you, where you can attach it. Um, and that just keeps it from grinding into your, you know, your leg or your stomach.
2: So avoid the bruising.
3: Yeah, yeah, and and you do bruise very easily, um, you know, after hours of that. So the rod that I was using was an eighteen weight Fisher blue water and I don't I don't even know if they're made anymore. It was just like a tree trunk. It was the biggest rod I could find. And the biggest reel I could find at the time as far as capacity for backing was a Pate uh bluefin. Um which if any of your listeners have ever used pates, they're just they're bulletproof. They're not, you know, particularly glamorous, but uh, they're sort of old school looking but they're great reels and uh so I had uh like a six fifty grain sink tip with a fifty pound Dacron backing, probably seven hundred yards, maybe something like that. I can't remember what it held but um, it was plenty of plenty of line because with the with the tuna they they pretty much just go down so and we were only in five hundred six feet of water five or six hundred feet of water so they couldn't really get away from us. I mean, if they wanted to run, you could chase them, uh, but they couldn't spool you by sounding. So uh, we kind of had a little bit of an advantage there. Um, so anyway, I said, well, what happens if we get one up to the boat? And he leaned over and of course, I think at the time you could smoke in restaurants and he you know, he, he always had a, an inch long cigarette in his mouth and he took a little puff and blew it out and looked at me and said, we stick him. <laughs> And I said, okay, (laughs) sounds good to me. So anyway, uh, so we headed out the next morning and uh, straight to that spot, the rock pile. And uh, it was really foggy. I mean, you couldn't see more than maybe 150, 200 feet. And uh, there were one or two boats around us, I think. Uh, They were all fishing like conventional tackle. And so um, we had, uh, for Chum, we had a couple flats of, Manhattan, or, or they call them fat backs or pogies, and um, they're just about a 10-inch long, really fatty, silvery-looking fish that um, are, you know, they're common in in fresh in saltwater uh, back east along the coast. And um, once we got to that spot, he motored around a little bit, marked a big got a big mark on his color sounder, which he you know he explained to me that's that's them, and uh, the mate started throwing over pieces of, of uh, the fat back and a couple of whole fish and as soon as he did it, the, the fish started coming up. They weren't that deep they were maybe 50 to 100 feet deep um, and it was cloudy so um, and tuna having a large eye and kind of light shy they tend to stay a little deeper during the day, but it was perfect conditions. They came right up to the surface and he said, all right, I'm cutting them you know I'm cutting you know, taking the engines out of gear and um, I, I might have stripped off 30 or 40, 50 feet of line at the most. And um, with a fly like that, I was using a Cam uh, Ziegler tube fly. It's probably eight to 10 inches long, pretty heavy, double hook. has a stinger hook in it. And um, I heaved it out there and he said, now, hang on. And, and I mean, it wasn't long. And um, it felt like I, I was connected to, you know, a small automobile. That first fish that we hooked, uh, and you could see the fish all underneath the boat. I mean, they were everywhere. You throw a fatback on the surface; if it floated, you know, they would just bust out of the water and you know, fly out of the water and eat the fish. And it was it was impressive. I'd never seen anything you know quite like it. And obviously, your adrenaline is just through the roof at that point. Um, And anyone that's been in like a fishing saltwater fishing frenzy kind of knows what I'm talking about. That fish we fought for probably. Two almost two and a half hours, and I felt like we were really gaining on it. Um, it was a it was a good sized fish, probably uh, you know somewhere between 100 and 200 pounds. And because um, he saw him, you know, he could from the bridge where he was. This is a 54 foot uh, long um, Carolina boat, Harkers Island built stick boat, um, pretty big boat. So he's up in the bridge and he could see what was going on. All of a sudden. My line went slack, and I was like, oh, my God, I lost the fish. You know, I said, I'm sorry. And he said, I don't think you lost the fish. And so I cranked it up, and my fly line was gone. And my backing was, the backing was just, like, you know, shredded. And um, his mate, um, name was Kenny, Kenny said, um, he said, there's so many fish in the water, one of them cut you off, you know, with a, with a you know, sickle fin on its back or a tail fin. Or, <clears throat> something like that um oh, ouch i said well you know we'll try again so i tied a bimini on the backing and got another fresh fly line looped that on another leader another fly we motored back to to that area where we first hooked it because we had drifted probably a mile or more maybe a couple miles from that spot um to the north you know in the current uh, and also the fish sort of pulling you along um and marked the fish, chummed him up. You could see him there. I cast out and I immediately hooked a, a big fish. I mean, you, 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 you know, you, could, you can't really tell the difference between a 100-pound fish and a 200-pound fish, but um, I hear a creature from the bridge. He says, break him. And I'm like, I, I just hooked him. What are you talking <laughs> about? He said, well, that fish is probably 400 pounds. You're not going to land him. Um,
2: How do you think he I knew said, that?
3: Well, he, the, so the flies may be you know you're in the gulf stream so it's crystal clear water and um the fog was lifting a little bit uh he could see really well into the water flies only down maybe six or seven feet so he can he saw the fish eat it i see so yeah so he could tell pretty much how big it was and um and he tends to underestimate the size of fish anyway so if he said it was 400 (laughs) pounds i'm sure it was so i broke the fish off and tied on another fly i had to get another leader obviously and I tied on another fly, same thing happened. And uh, so I said, "Greets, that's like, I've lost like 60 bucks worth of flies this morning. <laughs> and he said, you're here to catch a fish. I said, okay. So tied on another one and uh, hooked up right away again. He said, that's the right size fish. So after about an hour, uh, I, we were making really good progress on that fish as well, but the line kind of went not, not slack, but sort of dead. I mean, the fish it wasn't doing anything I, there were no head shakes or um you know pulsing like you normally have with a tuna once it gets kind of on its side starts to pinwheel and um i said something's wrong with this fish creature and uh he said uh he said it's probably tail wrapped and i said well what do we do now he said i'm gonna go ahead a little bit he kind of bumped it ahead and he said put as much pressure as you can on it and it'll it'll glide up to the surface and uh, sort of surf its way to the surface which it did and once it was on top you could see you know it was tailed toward the boat and um the, and the fish was dead so oh. we uh we were able to get it and um um put it on board and and it was probably a 90 pound around 90 pounds uh which was the was the world record at the time it was the, probably the big, i think it was the biggest tuna that had ever been caught on a fly rod and um the the previous um, record for a for a bluefin was I think in the seventies, um, and there was a guy in Bermuda in the in the early seventies had caught a eighty three pound yellowfin I think which was a big big uh, tuna. Anyway, nice. um, uh, we put it on board and I said, well, that's great. You know, it's been fun. He said, you want to catch another one? I said, I said, um, I guess. And he said, we can keep two. The sport fishing (laughs) rules right now are you can keep to. I said, well, all right, we'll give it a shot. I I feel pretty good. So
2: So how were your hands feeling at this point? Like, were you exhausted?
3: Not really. It's more um, because with tuna, you're you're pretty much straight up and down the whole time. Um, And I was in pretty good shape at the time because I I ran a lot of track and uh, um, master's track uh, even into my early 40. I think I was 40 or 41 at the time. And... um, I, um, I was in really good shape, but uh, it's really hard on your hamstrings and your lower back. Yes. Um, so, because it's just straight up and down. Um, so anyway, we, we, we hooked up again. He said, that's a little bit bigger fish. He said, but it's not too big. And um, we fought that fish for really hard, as hard as I could without, I mean, as hard as I wanted to um, uh, or I dared to. And after, I think it took another two and a half hours to get that fish up, um, and, and we really wore that fish out. I mean, it was, you know, it was done. It wasn't like, um, once we had it up to the surface, we, were, we pretty much knew we had it and put that on board. And he was pretty excited. He said, that's a 120 or 30 pound fish right there. And I said, wow, that's, that's, a, that's a big fish for a fly rod. I said, I've never caught anything quite like that.
2: I bet you could feel it in your back and your thighs, like but my back and my thighs say yes it is.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean I had a I remember I have a picture somewhere of me sitting on the washboard with the fish lying on the deck and I'm just like a piece of like melting butter. I was so tired. <laughs> um my shoulders slumped and you know the fish is laying there and so we kind of cleaned up and um Put the fish on ice and got my put my gear away and I went up in the bridge and and uh, with him and t- to ride in and uh, it's a beautiful beautiful ride in I'll never forget um, the sun had come out it was warm maybe sixty degrees um, and uh, we passed a, a a pod of humpbacks and and I remember seeing one of the one of the bigger. Um, whales in that pod it it breached 18 times in a row it was just incredible and there's gobs of sea life like you know tons of gannets and when you get near shore you see um you know big schools of stripers and uh it, it was it was really amazing anyway um once you get to the inlet it's about three miles to the to the uh, marina, he said. Now, when you get to the marina, there's going to be a lot of people there. I said. Well, I said, I know. I said, a lot of people want fishing today. He said, No, no. I, he said, People want to talk to you. And I said, Like who? He said, Saltwater Sportsman Magazine, Marlin Magazine. They want to do an interview. Blah blah blah. I'm like, All right, whatever. And um, um, it was. It was really. I was kind of surprised, actually. Um, so I did. I did a bunch of interviews. I met I met a guy from Australia, um, really famous marlin fisherman who had come for that for this big bluefin bite. I think his name is Peter Wright. Fished all over the world. He's legendary. Um, had a nice chat with him, and uh, I said, "Well, we you know we got to go, Creech. We got to weigh this fish." And we went to the local um, tackle shop as Frisco Rod and Gun and weighed the fish. It's very it, it's it's a real process. I mean, you have to take a lot of measurements, a lot of photographs. You have to take photographs of your gear. Um, You have to have people that are like witnesses. Um, The scale has to be certified, which it was like three or four months in advance. Um, They're really sticklers. And when when you submit your leader, you can't just send them the leader. You leave the fly on the leader and then you cut the fly line about a foot or so above where it attaches to the leader you put all that in a plastic bag and you send it off to IGFA and, you know, they look at the application and test the the leader um, for breaking strength. You don't want it to break, you know, more than 10 kilos. And mine were all all breaking like 9.9. They were right at 10 kilos. So um, I, I knew that, you know, I was safe there. But and several weeks later, um, I got a big, you know, fancy certificate in the mail and, um Uh, you know, certifying the catch as as, uh, as a world record, so um, and and the significance of it was we uh, um, and I say we, because if you don't have somebody operating the boat that knows what they're doing, you'll never catch one of these fish, I mean, they're they're really active, they're they have the ability to kind of regulate their body temperature to a certain extent, so when they go in and out of the hot water the, you know, Gulf Stream water they get these little bursts of energy, so they're they're really tricky, um, and and Creech could you know he he whips that boat around like it's a you know little tin boat. He's it's incredible. Um, so we um, we we were the first to catch a, a tuna of any kind over hundred pounds anywhere in the world. So was, you know in terms of saltwater sort of fly fishing history, that was the kind of significance of it. So it was pretty cool.
1: And now a brief message from our sponsors. Here at CDUSA, we have owned nearly every brand of fly rod throughout our 30-year careers as guides and globetrotting anglers. When we discovered Composite Development's flagship fly rods, the XL2 and the ICT2, we uncovered a secret harbored by the Kiwis for four decades. Born from Japanese touré, CD's unique manufacturing process involves winding the graphite fibers inside the blank, negating heavy thread wraps at the end of each section. Creating a lighter and more durable fly rod. Check out the XLS2 and the ICT2 at your local CD USA dealer, or go to cd-fishing.us. And remember
3: to go fishing.
2: And did you celebrate that evening eating some of the some of the well earned catch?
3: We did. We did. I remember um, after leaving the, the tackle shop um, uh, run down, I I could. I remember stepping up into my truck and sort of. Um, my hamstrings and my butt just cramped like like a knot and I was stumbled and I eventually got <laughs> in my truck and went and got a shower I think I might have called a good friend of mine um, guy I've known since I was well the night I was born I, I've known him since the night I was born and his father wow. um, his father helped me catch my first fish when I was like 8 years old um, anyway um we went out to dinner, Creech and his wife Edie, and myself. Uh, ate a bunch of sushi. Uh, might have had a grilled, you know, tuna steak, and uh, it was it was wonderful. And then I drove home the next day. So,
2: and, and what did is it Debbie?
3: My what, wife is Debbie. Yes.
2: Yeah. What did Debbie say after all of this?
3: I, she thought it was you know pretty cool, but um, <laughs> I you know for her it was just like well he caught another fish, whatever on know?
2: vacation. Um, <laughs>
3: yeah i mean i don't i i i think over time it you know it it sort of became you know a little bit more interesting to her in terms of the significance but uh, you know she knows i don't really have any illusions about myself and she certainly (laughs) has no illusions about me (laughs) so do you still
2: do you still keep in touch with creature
3: we do we do uh we uh, after that, I think later that year, he came to Montana with me, and for a couple of weeks, we, we fished, uh, gosh, a bunch of places in Idaho, uh, Kelly Creek, um, Locksaw, fished the Bitterroot, um, Blackfoot, Clearwater, Big Hole, and and he came out with me for another six or seven or eight years. Um, we we did it every year, and um, and eventually it became very problematic because. It's always at the time of year when hurricanes seem to be wanting to come through Hatteras, so he had a couple of trips cut short. So he just didn't risk it anymore because um, it was just such an in- inconvenience to get out here and then have to fly back and take care of his house and boats and all that. So,
2: and at this point, do you are you still the record holder?
3: You know, I don't think so. Uh, I think a little while later from, I I don't know the full story, but I heard somebody caught a fish that was supposedly a half a pound heavier. Now, Uh. I think when you break a world record like that, you need to break it by at least a pound. Um, And it was on a boat that friends of mine from Hatter's said, that that, you know, the guy was pretty dubious captain. And and they weighed it on a meat scale. It wasn't certified. It was, so who knows? But, I mean, I don't really care. Um, You know, it was... uh, it, it, you know that's kind of meaningless to me but um but Creech and I still keep in touch and um he helped me eventually build um well in that he he introduced me to a guy that owns a sport fishing boat building company in, in uh, North Carolina Jarrett Bay Boat Works and the owner of that company Randy Ramsey he uh he had a small boat that he wanted to sell that they built cold molded Carolina boat and uh, just a day boat center console and it was expensive like $120,000 and it's just too much money, so I have a lot yeah. of woodworking experience. And I thought, well, I could just build the boat. And um, I uh, said, so I'll get somebody to help me who knows about boats and and uh, I can I can do the rest. And um, so he sent me the plans, which were really rudimentary, and I had no idea what to do with them when they arrived. So, but I eventually figured it out with the help of my friend, and and uh, and we built the boat. And uh, it's been um and it ended up costing me the same amount of money as what he was asking <laughs> for his boat. So, uh, but it was a great experience and, and I still have the boat. It's, it lives in the Bahamas. I've caught just hundreds and hundreds of fish off it. And it's a great boat for fly fishing um, when the conditions are right. Um, and uh, so Creech kind of helped facilitate all that. And uh, I've I talked to him pretty regularly.
2: Yeah, I mean, you sh- sent me that photo. I guess I had no idea. I mean, I think of somebody building a boat. I just was thinking, oh, how cool. And then I saw that picture. I'm like, that is, uh, that is craftsmanship. Because you did say you have uh, a history of woodwork. So, I mean, we should discuss about your what you do. I mean, how that led well, to that. I,
3: yeah, I'm not, I'm not a boat builder, but I built... Um, Oh, back in the '70s, early '80s, um, I was kind of interested in violin making, so I, you know, I, I did a little bit of that, not professionally, really. Although I, did, I think I ended up selling one or two. But um, I got into building period American furniture um, pretty heavily, and wow. kind of had a business doing that. Um, that was, you know, that's not something you do to make money. Um, and I remember um, and this guy called me up one day. And he was looking for. Um, a particular kind of wood, a figured maple for making a guitar. And he told me he, he needed to make a guitar for Carlos Santana. And so I said, well, I, you know, I have what you need and you come out and have a look at it. And so wow, this, this guy came out, he had this whole, he showed me a bunch of pictures of guitars he'd made for different people. He had just finished a guitar for Howard Leese of Hart, um, made guitars for Peter Frampton, Al Meola, a bunch of people. And I was pretty impressed. And Anyway, the guy's name is Paul Reed Smith, and uh, we became pretty good friends, and uh, I helped him a little bit with wood here and there through the years, and um, when he started his factory, uh, he, he started calling me constantly for wood, and I was like, you got to stop calling me. I'm building <laughs> furniture. I need my wood. Stop calling me. So then he started getting his wife to call me, which was really funny. And, um, <laughs>
2: which is harder to say no, right? <laughs>
3: Well, not really, but so <laughs> eventually he said, you need to work for me. And so I said, well, what do you pay me? And he told me, which was like not much, but it was three times what I was making building furniture. So <laughs> I, I started working for him in the mid 80s and um, and I still work for him. And um, and so probably some of your listeners know who he is and um, it's become a pretty iconic uh, guitar brand in, in the U.S. now. We're probably number Three behind uh, Fender and Gibson in terms of overall production, but we make a lot of really high-end guitars.
2: Yeah, what can, uh, can you give the name of the the guitars? Yeah, that you Paul, guys
3: make? Paul Reed Smith guitars, PRS. Yeah.
2: Oh my so. gosh! Yeah, I mean, first off, I do have some questions because now that I've seen the photo, how? What was the hardest part of creating that that boat?
3: Well, yeah. So that that boat, uh, it's cold it's what is called cold molded. So you build. Upside down, you build this frame that ultimately you, you don't use the frame. It's, it's sort of a plywood frame that you attach the um, what are called the longitudinals to. So it's like the keel, uh, the chine, the stringers, which support the bottom, uh, and then some of the pieces along the side. So you build this big frame, and then on that, you attach, um, in varying sizes, a kumi plywood, uh, which is a really expensive high-grade plywood um and it's called cold molded because you don't heat anything to bend it you bend it um to um the shape of your of your um, mold or your jig and if it doesn't bend the rule of thumb is you make it you make the piece smaller so um so that that the stern the bottom the sides are all made out of um, uh, double or triple layers of this akumi plywood in different thicknesses and then on top of that you use a heavy uh, glass, fiberglass, it's like burlap. A couple layers of that um, that's saturated with epoxy and um, and then there's some other um, products that go on top of that that you eventually sort of smooth out and um, there's a term in boat building called, uh, you, to make it fair, so the, these fairing compounds, basically you just smooth out the lumps and, and make it sort of pretty looking, but um, I and mean, once, the, once the, it's
2: stunning, it is like the most beautiful. I, I, I mean, I'm looking at the photo right now and the smoothness that you just described. I mean, you can see it. I just, how long did it take you to make this?
3: Well, over a period of about two and a half years, but I, you know, I worked kind of on and off because I had a full time job, but, um, you know, weekends and nights and whenever I could. Um, and uh, did most of the uh, I didn't do the um, the uh, aluminum welding because I, I don't know, that's very tricky um, but I did most of the, you know, hung the motor and did most of the electronics and the steering and all that kind of stuff. And, and then had, had somebody that really knew what they were doing to check it all out. And then we ended up, um, sea trialing the boat at Jarrett Boat Works, uh, on the intercoastal near Beaufort, North Carolina. And then I shipped it to Florida and went over on a freighter, an old freighter I actually rode on the freighter that night with it. And then, um, it's got to go through customs and we towed it down to our little village that we live in or have a house in in the Bahamas. And uh, that's where it's been um, ever since having survived probably six fairly major hurricanes.
2: You know, I was going to ask you, Michael, if people have any questions um, about your story, uh, maybe about boat building, if they're kind of thinking, hey, during COVID, (laughs) I'm going to try and build a boat. um, What's the best way for them to reach you?
3: I guess through my email would be fine. Um, It's, Uh, Santiago.84 D-I-A-S D-S at gmail.com it's a really silly um, obscure reference to Old Man in the Sea
2: yep well because on top of that you're also um, you like to write on your on the times that you're not building boats or trying to figure out ways to go fishing which is incredible
3: well yeah I'm 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 not a writer but I'm I'm working on a novel about a, a Cuban friend of mine he's a, a refugee um, he arrived here in the early 90s had an incredibly harrowing story of um, you know life in prison and it's it's an it's an incredible story and he he actually is um, what what probably makes the story most interesting for me and for many people um, of all a couple things he has the largest collection of Cuban art Anywhere in the world, and that, and in a way, that's kind of what brought him to the states, and what enabled him to get here. Um, and, uh, and a little side note, he also was friends with. Um, uh, this is in the eighties, nineteen eighties, with Gregorio Fuentes, who was um, Ernest Hemingway's mate for all those years.
2: Where, where are you on the progress of this
3: of this book? I'm almost to the part where they. Um, they, they literally jump in the water in the middle of the night with inner tubes, swim out into the ocean and meet the boat that they, they were to come on um, to get to the state. So I'm, I'm almost to the point where they're going to make the journey, which was which was a really very difficult experience for for everybody. It was on, I think there was like 14 people on the boat. It was a very small boat.
2: Oh I cannot wait to read this book. You know I was telling like, talking to Justin about you know we start to learn about all these things in history, like we learn about the big event, but there's also these small little pockets of history that are just as important, and you don 't get to hear these, these stories of history and how people um, really overcame such horrible times so i 'm um, really looking forward to hearing this story and reading it, so you have to keep me posted on the progress of, uh, sure. of this book
3: so absolutely this. Not that I necessarily needed the education, but it's certainly given me a renewed appreciation for what people go through to to get, you know, try and get to this country.
2: Absolutely. I mean, yep, I couldn't have said it better. So um, but thank you so much, Michael, for joining me today. And I look forward to hearing more of your adventures, more book, more Boat building, book reading, and um, maybe another world-class tuna catch in the near future too.